Hi, this is Joe Van Wee, your host of All Better. I had a few announcements. If you're interested in subscriber content, which we're about to launch, this would be step workshops, cognitive behavioral therapy tools, and mindfulness practices that are approachable and can be very useful in reducing anxiety, rumination, and depression. Please send us a, a message on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And if you like the episodes that you've been hearing very much, please stop by Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and a small review. This helps us stay relevant in the field of content and helping people and their families with substance use disorder. Thank you. Hello, and thanks again for listening to another episode of All Better. I'm your host, Joe Van Wee. Today's guest is a friend. His name is Michael Archangeletti. Michael is the executive director of Clearbrook in Banyan, Philadelphia, and has been working in the field of addiction treatment since 2010. He is a licensed social worker that completed his graduate degree at Marywood University, an undergraduate degree in philosophy from Misericordia University, and is a certified alcohol and drug counselor through the Pennsylvania Certification Board. He has held numerous titles throughout his years in the field including residential tech, intake coordinator, counselor, clinical supervisor, and assistant clinical director. Michael joined the Banyan Clearbrook team in November 2010 and states that his passion for helping others comes from his own personal experience in recovery. I thought we were going to talk about, today the plan was to talk about Clearbrook's modality and the shifts it's taken in the last couple of years, which are fairly dramatic. But then we veered off because Mike's a philosophy major. And we talk about the bonds of, or the boundary of free will in terms of addiction. Where does it begin? Where does it end? Where is a person's agency even upon entering recovery? when others can have such a powerful influence on what that person's decisions are going to be. So it's an interesting topic, and uh, let's meet Mike. Okay, we're here in studio with Mike Archangeletti. Uh, we've known each other for probably over 10 years now. Easy. Um, and Mike, as I said, in his introduction, is the clinical director of Clearbrook. I thought today Mike could come in and tell us a little bit about the evolution of Clearbrook through his own perspective and from what it started as decades ago, grew into, and now was acquired a few years back by a company named Banyan. And I think it'll be an interesting story because there's yeah. monumental changes, not only in the real estate, developing it into a campus. And then when Banyan come in, came in, you have a huge shift in modalities, the way you approach treatment and ideologies. So, mm -hmm. Thanks for coming in. Yes. Thanks for having me, Joe. So just a little background. How would you summarize your person in recovery and you start working in the field of drug and alcohol? What, right. what drew you to work in this field? 
Well, it starts with, you know, personal experience. So I actually, um, you know, it's interesting. I got sober a couple different times in my life. Like it started in 2008 and um, all three times I went to treatment, I went to Clearbrook, which is pretty, <laughs> yeah, interesting. You stick with the brand? Stick with the brand, you know. Okay. Um, but yeah, no, it's, um, you know, I'm your, you know, your typical story, alcoholic person from West Side. Um, start drinking, you know, mainly in high school earlier, you know, you go the flow of experimenting with other stuff and, you know, little by slow, it starts to achieve, um, that relief feeling. And then, you know, that takes hold. But, um, yeah, I got, uh, sober one time in 2008 and then, um, new to the process, trying to figure out how to, apply these newly, you know, these new perspectives on my life and these principles that are kind of like being shown to me to kind of apply. Yeah. And, um, I fumbled with them. I screwed up a lot. I couldn't really understand it. You know, I went to school for philosophy, so I always was kind of like, you know, you know, you know, like what does like made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God? Like, wait, one, all right, let's stop. Who is God? Right. Two, will, this whole idea of will, where does that play into it? And so I was way too focused on ways to kind of really um, separate myself from any type of process or give myself over to like this ideology that's starting to present itself because I'm just confused. And with that comes a lot of mistakes and then go through the process. And But in it, I loved conversation. Like my whole life, like I really... Um, because I had a pretty rough upbringing with kind of what was going like, you know, with how I was raised and how it was. And so I always, um, very much attached myself to my friends and the conversations that we would have in the camaraderie and the, uh, feeling of acceptance that, yeah, granted that we were like making a lot of not, not the best decisions and doing a lot of crazy stuff, but there was this camaraderie that I know, without fail, they accepted me. And, um, you know, that in some weird way, it was like this iron sharpening iron friendships that we had. And I always very much valued conversation in pushing ideas and just this intensity that would happen when you're, you know, 10 beers deep sitting in the cemetery up in West side at 12 o'clock at night ponder in life. You well, know? it's real. Yeah. And I, it's yeah. not to be scoffed at. Like I re, I remember would hear, I would hear a few things like, Oh, you can't be people, places, things, get rid of all your old friends. Uh, you know, that's not the same thing for everyone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and friendships are real for drunks. They're adventurers. They're philosophers. Mm-hmm. My, my addicts and drunks of my type. Um, I wanted that and I still needed it replaced when you take away booze. But I want to, I want to ask one question there. 2008, how old were you? Like that first 25, 25, 25. that's the first entry. And you have this draw to philosophy before we go on to Clearbrook. I want to unpack that because we, we've talked a lot and you said, you know, treatment at this point looks like going to a rehab, you come out of a rehab, you go into a peer to peer 12 step kind of organizations, the following support, and you got to make sense of it from here. And in these ideologies, the first three steps, which are kind of fundamental to joining any 12 step group, 
The third one says you make a decision. So you, you have agency. They're assuming at this time that you can make your own decisions, whatever that means to turn your will. So now you submit your, it's your conscious and willful decision to alleviate yourself of will. What the, what the fuck does that mean? I still have problems with that, but it's delicate to talk about. So some people get it and that whatever that means, but I'm not sure if that's real too. Like it wasn't enough for me. And I don't think it's bad to question it. I think it's bad to question it in the way you said it separates, Mm -hmm. it separates and you have to find the right people. Can we talk about these ideas? I want to get sober. I don't want to die, but I also don't think I could just not make things make sense and move forward. Right. Right. Like what, how did that? Well, no, I think, so when you think about like drug and alcohol treatment from just like where it gets started, like, like pre temperance movement, you know, way back when, like the drunk tanks, even before that, there's this joining of morality in alcoholism where there's this approach that, um, yes, there's the radical understanding of like the, the way in which people are drinking are causing problems in, in society. And these people need to be removed because how drunk they're getting, what they're doing, what's happening, like they can't be in society based on their actions. So they have to be removed. And so then there's this like this joining of like a medical approach of like helping them through it, which is interesting is like, you know, like the Belladonna treatments that they talk about. So it's like the twenties and thirties. Yeah, twenties yeah, yeah, and thirties. And but, Belladonna, just for a footnote, it's 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 nightshade. Yes, and it's it creates hallucinations. It's 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 brutal in high doses. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so what's interesting too is like then there's this morality aspect that gets joined with the disease of addiction, right? Before they could understand it, like the disease of addiction is made this determination somewhere in the fifties and sixties or something like that, but way before it. And this is what interests me is that there's this morality aspect that is joined where the way you drink and what results from it is kind of due to you having a moral deficiency. And if you improve that moral deficiency, therefore you will get better and you will not return and you will not go back to, you know, your formal life. And it's extremely Christian. You know what I mean? To me, it's an extremely Christian thing because, you know, there's this idea of, you know, total depravity that you're born in sin, that you are, um, you, you know, like have this like separateness from God. And until you could come to terms with, how separate you are and your need for that connection through yeah. a mediator, you know, there's, um, you know, that's the only way you could kind of be relieved of this depravity and then to have so meaning. You, you have this, I, I just want to interject because a lot of this, there's a lot of things swimming here. Yes. The morality piece is this starts in the 1800s, Washingtonians. We see it kind of, evolved by the late 1800s into this movement, the Oxford groups who are practicing early Christianity as a means to help alleviate people of alcoholism. There's some ideas floating around, but they're not in the total zeitgeist of all Americans that alcoholism is a disease. Benjamin Rush, if I could just kind of bring us up to the twenties offers this in an essay that, you know, he takes this word that was, you know, a Swiss, physician projected it's alcoholism. Benjamin Rust, you know, compliments this idea. Yeah. I think it's a a disease. There's something beyond will here. So we're still on the third. We're talking about the the idea of 
of free will. Free will is already kind of this definition held by two massive entities that have been swimming through history for about 300 years that converge into Oxford groups and AA. And I would say it was Calvinists and Catholics. Mm. Calvinism is really the movement that says you are broken. You're depraved and you're beast until you receive God. Mm -hmm. And this is the movement, puritanical movement that would kind of could paint the lens of the destruction of alcoholism from drinking it. And this gives the idea that something precedes the drinking. It's moral deficiency. Mm -hmm. This is the language of the late 1800s. We get to the twenties where you were saying Belladonna, but now there's this eight outside agents, Belladonna nightshade. Let's give it to the person who's immoral. That mm -hmm. It will produce some kind of experience of the transcendent. It's not a psychedelic, but it, it was having a similar effect because I think what it does, it mutes the frontal lobe. Like, so the sense of self might drop out from you. You have this ego death, mm -hmm. possibly. That's what the, the experiences at Towns Hospital were summarized as. These guys are, their ego's dying. There's something beyond the, the cure for pain. Their trauma wasn't pleasure. There's more than me. Mm-hmm. This has gotten, now they would interject God at this point. Yeah, well, put your foot on the pedal. You need some morality. Yeah. Um, why did that work? Why do you think that works? And if it's working, is it the same language? Is it free? Like, where do you see free will in this? Because we talked about this. We have similar yeah. ideas on free will. Yeah, I mean, to me, I, I, I believe we have the ability to make choices like there we're, we're free in regard to kind of producing agency in a moment but there is a there is an order that is like it, it ultimately like i have to start with this it comes down to where you like where you fall on that idea of god and what you believe okay. there because if you believe that there is a creator of the universe who created all things who sustains all things who set this thing in motion then you have you know, a foundation to kind of really spring to truthfully answer this. So I don't believe things are completely this um, deterministic uh, Hume, like David Hume kind of um, cause and effect the, yeah. the, the like to some capacity. But I do believe that there is a underpinning of purpose and truth that exists that could be found in God. But then to, to put to answer your thing about like free will, I think with an alcoholic, I think that's the most defeating thing. I think it's very apparent because people who suffer from alcoholism and, and substance use, they're extremely feeling people. Like they, they feel their environment. They're very intelligent. They have an ability to just perceive a lot. And sometimes it's over, um, over stimulation at times of just like experiencing the world that is around them in the pain and suffering that is, a, is a truism like suffering exists. You're going to suffer. Yeah. And you know, you want to be able to alleviate it and you want to be able to combat it. And here comes your free will. It's just like, you know, like pull your bootstraps up, um, exert more effort, you know, or hide and use this substance and, and to it do that. It seems like and cruel so, choices sometimes. And so it's a pattern in alcoholics that just like, you know, when you, you know, to kind of like sprinkle in some of the reality of like trauma that happens, like um, consistent thread in 
everybody I spoke to since my time and being a clinician and working with patients is that there is some level of um, upbringing traumatic events that people experience that are too much for them to handle at the time. Yeah. And it's always something that they go back to as this like formulated thing. So in response to that, they kind of exert their will to achieve relief, achieve, you know, um, understanding, or at least just to cope with it. And then, then starts this cycle because then it works for a little while, but then when addiction takes a hold and, you know, you start to develop a tolerance and then you start to need more and more of a substance to achieve a desired effect as all this stuff starts going, you start placing yourself in more risky situations that you normally wouldn't. And then you start doing things that go against your character because anything that you felt as if were you, then you start to compromise that. And then you start feeling guilty and then you have shame. And then here we come into this morality problem of like, I'm doing things that I know I don't agree with, but now I'm doing things that are causing trauma, not just to me, but to other people. And now this cycle develops. So yes, in some capacity, the only type of approach that was seen to be necessary or yeah. truthful is this morality fixing. And it was the language, the only language kind of yeah. that was being offered that yeah. could reach common ground between all people, uh, and, and especially in the thirties, the, the emergence of AA out of the Oxford groups. Yep. There was a few things I, I, I want to go back and, sure. you know, I was an athe- an atheist. I, I would describe myself as an atheist to the gods that do exist. But I, I was telling you, I was hedging that when I'm t- telling you not that they're like Occam's razor or, or uh, you know, I, I'm. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Joe Van William, the host of All Better. I'm also the CEO of Fellowship House. At Fellowship House, we believe long-term recovery requires a personality change as well as a clinical intervention. These ideas can take several months to achieve. Our philosophy is to provide a safe, therapeutic, and exceedingly active environment for patients to achieve these personality changes and find joy the Fellowship of Recovery, which will allow for long-term sobriety. We believe that recovery extends beyond treatment and peer-to-peer communities into real life. In Fellowship House, we provide a design for living that focuses on education and service. We have strong relationships with the 12 universities and vocational schools in the area and ensure that our fellows pursue their personal goals while entering sobriety. We also stress independence and responsibility, making sure each individual is financially solid and self, and helping to make their community a better place. As a treatment center, Fellowship House offers both residential and outpatient treatment services to individuals and families affected by addiction and alcoholism. We're a DDAP licensed provider of general outpatient intensive outpatient, and partial hospitalization programming, as well as a level of care assessments. If you want to find out more information about Fellowship House, please visit fellowshiphouses.com.
I also accept at the same terms, I'm basking in a sea of ignorance. So it makes me curious. And the third step, when you're saying there is a creator, it was hard for me to go there. What, what, what attributes of the creator can be identified if there is a creator? And when did this creator become relevant if other things weren't conscious to even acknowledge there's a creator? Mm-hmm. Like we're dinosaurs even doing like what was going on is just a sea of monsters and dead planets. And then we arrive. What's the relevance until we arrive? Mm. Granted there's alien. So if the creator, like just from, you know, it's not saying the evidence is true. We're looking at the expansion of what we're calling the material world. It seems like a simple process. The more we understand it, like it was just an expansion or an emergence of, of things coming here. How complex is the creator? If that's all he had to do and in the ordinance of being the catalyst, did he just move every little piece deterministically to become human, the human mind to develop in this universe? So this is where I'm swimming in a sea in an hour meeting. I'm in withdrawal. (laughs) This is where my mind focuses while I, you know, I can't open mail. Mm. I am in pain and I'm not saying, oh, just submit. This is the logic. But my mind will go there. And I think it's a fair place to go if you're, you know, a free thinking person. But you also, I also had to measure how much time do I have left before I get, I die of the, and do I have this disorder? I do have this disorder. Guess I can't solve it by myself. My tolerance between those first three steps we're talking about had to grow enormously, or I was going to separate myself from the people I knew were sober. Mm-hmm. And that was my spiritual awakening, the beginning of it. I'm going to tolerate what other people are saying because I'm a, a, I'm a hypocrite. I'm in pain. I don't know how to help myself. That was the willingness. But when we talk about free will, and I think we kind of are on the, the same page is that free will, the way I was taught about it uh, and grew up in the, the culture and the time that I, I happened to be alive is that free will is this, this American thing meeting Catholicism that, the total determination over your futures on your shoulders. And you're in this cosmic kind of theater where you, you know, you could even couple it with new age stuff like the secret, the law of attraction, but I could just make this a fucking fun house mm. for myself mm. as if there's no agency in any other person or variables or the environment in which you live in. Like it can't influence you against your will. Um, I wasn't taught free will that way. So free will isn't this place where I could just have an avatar and build a map and then enjoy my life. Not everyone has the same variables of free will. And that's a cruel thing to say. And I don't think a lot of people like hearing that because you're not born into the same, not only opportunities, the limited choices, what is trauma or the response to trauma due to someone who doesn't respond to trauma in the same way? Kind of, Where's the will? Is there an agency we all start with that we could be in control of our minds equally the same way? It's a farce. So I, when we were talking, the third step for me is allowing agency, other people's possible agency to affect me because it's not going to harm me. And it was a trust. It was a leap of faith that I am not alone. Let someone influence you. Mm-hmm. With the, with the understanding that it, we're going in a positive direction. Like, yeah. like we're lining up with the same um, direction. We're aiming towards a good. We're aiming towards a positive. And at some level, whether I know what that is or not right now, I'm trusting this community that's <laughs> going to walk me yeah. to that direction. And you're 100% correct when you start like getting into this 
like environmental kind of analysis of not necessarily just AA and, and getting better, but just in general, like I was just reading last night about this very like interesting experiment. It's called the Milgram experiment. This guy, uh, Stanley Milgram, he really wanted to prove or at least understand um, the people who worked at the doors of the concentration camps that put people in. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and just try to understand like how a person could kind of give themselves over to an authority figure to do something as heinous as what that is. And so he set up this experiment where um, there was uh, a person that was sitting across from them that was hooked up to these electrodes. And then there was a subject that was brought in that would have control over the amount of voltage. And it started at like 15 volts and it went to like 450 volts. <laughs> like fate, right, almost fatal. you would have to interpret right. it as fatal. Right. And so this yeah. was the person that was brought in to kind of control this. And so they had to ask the person who was hooked up to the electrodes questions. And if they got them wrong, they had to shock them. But then there was a person that was an authority figure in a lab coat that would every time they they would, the person would get the question wrong and then they would have to incrementally go up with a higher voltage. When they got up to like 120 volts, the person would get, you know, um, fearful of what it could do. And then the authority figure would come in and say, you must hit that button. And they would hear the per, the perceived person that's receiving the shocks, yeah, they have no causality of what they're answering questions wrong. I, yeah, they're I, I answering questions, but they're part of the experiment too. So like they're, they're screaming from behind yes. a wall, right. like, and yeah. then where you're at in that, like now they're going to super voltage. Right. They're, they're hesitating. Can this be ethical? Am I harming someone? I don't, I don't know, but I have this authority figure (laughs) over me. He's telling do this now, hit this button. You must hit this button. And And more often than not, everybody got up to like 450 volts and they're doing this. And so he was really trying to, I mean, there's a whole lot of issues with his experiment. There's ethical and stuff like that, but it kind of, when we're talking about a third step, giving yourself over, right? There's this like ability to not want to give yourself over to the 30. There's this radical individualism that everybody has and no one wants in our to, culture, in our, our culture, our, our and culture, America, yeah. stuff like that. And it's, and it's, in and it's paralyzing at times, this radical individualism, but in reality, there's this quest for community or community connection, connection Submission to something greater, like, you know, and whether you assign positive or negative to that, like all human, like that's to me. And and again, I'm going to show my hand many times probably in this conversation yeah. uh, coming from a, like a faith perspective, at yeah, times, sure. you know, but I think that's ultimately what we've been craving yeah. in this existence and what this is. It, it is this, this um, authority figure or this, but all this authority. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot in that. And where you left off, yeah. they would scream, right? Yes. So they're at 450. They whacked them once. And I, I remember this experiment distinctly because it's it's most frightful what it says about humanity. If you don't fully unpack it, right. what what is being known by this in the general population here, are we separate from the cruelty and the nightmare in history that was called Nazis? Mm. Especially... In genocide and extermination. How can this happen? Who didn't stand up? Was everyone part of this ideology? Well, here's two people in a room, two are actors, and one has, they didn't come there with an assumed ideology of cruelty or, but man, it tapped into something that seems like the majority of the participants that were the, you know, these, the people 
being studied, you got these variables that are um, looking like they're dying, the person receiving the shocks. They stop screaming. They continue shocking. Some even went, you know, another 15, 20 minutes of shocking them. Now there's no screams. It's like right. the person's dead. You're Correct. Just, just shocking a corpse. Mm-hmm. Is this person evil? And that's what the heart, I think, of the discussion would be philosophically from that. There's something strange. If someone else could be blamed, we lose our autonomy. And there's an authority. And the authority is only established with a lab coat. Like, it's just a uniform. The the light presence of this uniform and wardrobe on another person has alleviated that person of their own responsibility to to another human being's life. This is an afternoon. They could have been having breakfast. They show up for this experiment they're in. And by the end of it, they don't know if they killed someone. Like it, it, it is frightening. So it, to me, if I'm like dreadful and cynical, I'm thinking how many people surrender to the, the steps, but it's not a conscious, like a fully conscious, maybe in the subconscious, what are you surrendering to? Or is it like mine is the initial attraction. I'm part of the in group. I was in the out group by myself. Say the out groups separateness. I'm alone. I am, I am the maverick dying of alcoholism or drug addiction. I found my in group. Does this still, would that be the beginning of why a so powerful in numbers? Well, I think, right. Okay. So another interesting part of that experiment too, is um, the person that was like giving the shock when they had to say, give that to like another person to hit the button, their compliance with going all the way to 450 went up to like 92%. But what's interesting is because this guy did a lot of different variables with this experiment where he, uh, he brought in say another individual who was part of the experiment, but like was affecting the person uh, flicking the knobs. And the second that they disagreed with where they were going, what they offered counterpoint, when the guy would step in and say, you must hit that button. And when that other person would say, no, he's not going to do that. We're not going to hurt this individual the person who was in the experiment would more often start siding with that because someone's finally stood up. Someone's yeah, finally went against. <laughs> yeah. It's like, Oh wait, wait, we can disagree here. We could, we have, we have a choice. Like we could do that. This choice thing comes in. Right. And so it's like, you know, like, you know, it's amazing how you could kind of weave in like the free will thing again, but yeah. like it's, it's the second someone kind of offers counterpoint to something that they feel they have no control over. Yeah. Boom. You come alive again. And it's like, wait a second, I could kind of really affect things and come into this. And so when you go to meetings and you start to like, I re- I just really remember so many like bad, bad moments of me being at <laughs> meetings and just, I'm putting at them. Re- re- you know what I mean? Just really trying to understand like, and just like, you know, people were very uh, tolerant of my wannabe just, um, like smarter or not just smarter. Well, but you just are like, smart, Mike. But like, you know, but <laughs> you, it's just like, I, I would, you were like, defending I would yourself. Yeah. Correct. You know, but, but then you start the minute you have someone kind of come alongside you and agree that you need to make this change. You need to take an honest look at what you're doing in your life. And this is like the role of like sponsorship or, or the role of, and you was know, that a, for you, Bruce? No, okay. no, no. Um, I didn't, I didn't have him. There's this, um, he actually works with us now. Donnie, Donnie was a guy that okay. uh, just really got me, you know? And, um, and, but then more often than not, it was just like, you know, then, you know, like 
Like I remember Nate, Nate and Evan, oh, yeah, Nate yeah, and Evan, yeah. Nate and yeah. Evan are the first people to ever take they me to a friends. meeting. They're yeah. my friend. You know what yeah. I mean? And Nate's been my friend for like the, you should have Nate here. It should be interesting. I haven't talked to, yeah, yeah I would love to. That would be funny. Yeah. Uh, I, we always have, we hung out a lot. I love, I know. Yeah, I he's love a good him. dude, man. Um, but you know, and it's this somewhat um, companion that comes alongside you at the right time yeah. to kind of like, not just validate the, the, the reality of your life and what your choices have kind of brought you to and to be understanding of what's happened in your entire life to get you to this point. Yeah. You know, then you start to really start to, to join into a process. Well, like what you're saying, like I feel a part of people are starting to talk a language and it's not like you're just drinking the Kool-Aid and now no. you're there. It's this true connection to, something that you feel is more purposeful. And so like, that's where the minute you start to put things into your life that, that create meaning, like I'm really big on that. Like I love when I hear people just talk about like their family and getting back to being a father or a mother or really just owning the responsibilities that they have, because it was just so deadened by just choosing to drink and drug and all that stuff. When, when purpose and meaning come back to an individual, it's beautiful and it's there and there's something intentional to it. But then to me, I watch, like, I could just see a loving purpose in, in God, in those moments of seeing like, he, like how lucky are we to get to see a beauty of redemption? Because that's yeah. the core is redemption. redemption. So like redeeming, you know what I mean? And I think that is part of a third step, making a decision or something. It's just like re- redemption that we crave it's, because we've been separate. It's old. And yeah. I think the most significant story of Judeo-Christian or the Bronze Age is the prodigal son. And what's that story mm. about? It's redemption. Something that by all reasonable accounts or logic, this is the son that should be punished. Fuck him. He didn't do the, he didn't earn his keep. Well, what has he shown? Love. I guess there is an intrinsic value that just overwhelms me. That's what the fiber of life is. What you said earlier, I kind of, the ideas that come to my head is that Especially when I had, I have trauma, ADD, I have anxiety. My first solution in bonding is alcoholism, addiction. We're all meeting in a place where we're saying addiction's the problem. And underneath this is, you know, it could be a whole luggage of problems, but addiction's the first one we all agreed. This, this worked for a while. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think a person with my condition, I don't know how to get better by myself. And I don't think you're risking a lot. You can die producing no results. Every result I'm turning to, to fix myself is failing and I'm losing heart. My shame's growing. Um, I'm getting beat into the sense that why am I not connecting to what's where people are meeting and getting sober? Irregardless if it's Alcoholics Anonymous, Dharma recovery, let's just, just generalize it for a second. I can't have a full human experience without connection. And the brain is set up for that. What I can, I don't even have access to who I think I am as a full bodied self. I, how many thoughts can you contain at any moment? I can't have access to all my memories. I can't even have access to all the things I prefer or what really happened versus what I wrote as a story in my head, the software in my head. But other people have access to it. Some things that I don't have access to of my own self. Think of how interesting that is. Like psychologically, 
to not have that relationships with not only family, but the friends I made in recovery that could tell me things that I was just completely unaware of about my own personality, the truth of my experience, because some things were so painful, I couldn't admit to me that my, my own self, that my behavior was bad. I was so used to it. So it wasn't like immor- immorality. It's like a more moral education. It wasn't like we're calling it deficiency. And I always hate that term, but how do you do that by yourself? I think that's where communities are just, this is where we could all agree secularly. And then we're changed where we were in the thirties that the group can be the beginning of the power. Correct. Cause they know more about you than you have access to. And you could tell them a lot about you that they could only know by you telling them. And then somewhere in there, you could be, you don't have to be your history. You're, you're, you're baking this every day, a story about yourself and you're attaching shame to it. You're hanging all these other, that could end, connect, connect. And, and then let's decide who do you want to be moving forward? Mm. Can you do that? That's, that's for me, that was the faith. How is that not, that's a word God for me. That mm. is God. I mean, I don't know what God could be fully flushed out to or why I would have access to an idea of a creator, but I was overwhelmed by what I was missing, like apparently missing an AA again at 40. And it just got me. Well, well, the question that's begging in my mind is what do you do then when the return of suffering happens? Because that's something, (laughs) no, because addicts and alcoholics have a low tolerance for suffering. Like, like, at a base level, like don't like here, like, yeah. please, I hope people don't hear me wrong in no, saying I, that. But what I mean by that is when, when you get sober, when you enter into recovery, sure. There's that, like everybody talks about like the pink cloud. There's just this um, relief that you've accepted the fact that you have a problem. And there's this, all these things that come from admitting. And then you might be at the point of like surrendering. And I think that moment of surrender that happens when someone, when it clicks in an individual who understands that, yes, like I have a problem with drinking, I have a problem with, with heroin, when it's that understanding happens and you surrender to it, it's a beautiful moment to watch happen. And that's like what I, what, that's what yeah. I chase in a conversation with someone is to get to understanding. Right. But then what happens is then suffering returns and people don't have a category for suffering at times because they internalize it. Like they did something wrong or, you know, the Catholic approach that yeah. says, you know what, like I did all this and now I'm deserving of this, but no matter what suffering exists. And so suffering returns. And so for someone that enters into recovery, th- like that's part of the, the, the preparation process of like, okay, like you're going to have to walk out a life now that things aren't going to go your way. Like there's a lot of wreckage that you're going to have to repair, you know, like nine step stuff. But then also there's this like, you know, maintenance of the day-to-day life of, you know, getting a job, losing a job, having a kid, figuring out how to raise a kid and just like dealing with that. Um, Maybe it's a death of a loved one. Maybe it's someone that you know really well that you've tried to help that all of a sudden now like returns and then unfortunately dies. And there's this return of suffering that happens to where now what you're saying is like the group could help you through that but at some level you need to understand that that exists yeah like just because you get sober and change your life like with that area 
Well, are you yeah. saying to, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, th- something else has to be, and it could be borrowed. And I'm not saying just a sheer ideology, but are you insinuating that the, uh, an individual needs a narrative of meaning? And, you know, this could be a story that life, but that pain is, is temporary. And the cure for pain is not pleasure that I found in addiction. Like, let me just uh, extinguish this with some kind of high or, an, or an, what could be indulgence to other people. But since I'm having this pain, the finish line is still worth it. Like, yes. To, to, to not believe the lie that addiction will solve the pain. The threshold of pain grows. Do you see a universal threat uh, now that we're I, we're sharing the same idea? What's the universal thread that gives someone kind of their own muscles, their own tolerance to say, I could be uncomfortable. I could be uncomfortable longer. And uncomfortability, like in Buddhism or say like a Dharma recovery approach is impermanence is the term that happiness is impermanent. All things are impermanent. But what isn't impermanent is awareness, open awareness. It precedes identity once you're conscious. It precedes concept, language, which limits how you even think. I think in English, (laughs) if I'm going to start using words. So I have this open awareness that you're, I am, I am, I am the object that is aware, but I'm not separate from, how are you separate from what you're aware of? It's fucking, it's freaky. And you know this in philosophy, subject yeah. to object. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in that meaning, some people could have a narrative, a script, the religion that's comforting, could be virtuous, um, that ties into the grand scheme, the story. One story's being told, I'm in it. <laughs> I'm in this story. That's most Western or, or, or religions. Eastern is that, you know, I've emerged in the story. I'm here temporarily. All things are impermanent but I could be aware of it. Um, I could, my pain will pass just as fast as my happiness. Like, and why do I think the, the future is always going to be better? Like, is that keeping me alive? <laughs> like willfully? What do you see as the thread that works the fastest in, in you've been a clinician for a while. You've, you've, you've been in recovery. What gives people that, that autonomy that when they're alone and suffering, that it's not panic and it's all worth it. Wow. Yeah, I I'll answer that like personally and then probably like more experientially from like working with people and seeing that happen. But for me, that's a huge like, you know, you're saying it correctly in saying that it's more of a of a faith-based approach or like where ultimately where do we land on when it comes to ultimate meaning and purpose? And so like as you were talking the only thing that was coming to mind was like all things work for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purposes. And I think it's is that, that scripture, is that scripture, that's, that's like Romans eight okay. uh, 28 or something like that. And um, it's this truism that if you are called by God and you are working in accordance with his principles, everything works for good. And this, this idea of contentment, it could be achieved and that no matter what I'm going through right now, it's for a bigger purpose. So there's a story of um, when, when they were bringing uh, the ark into the promised land, when Joshua yeah. was leading them in and the priests had to st- stand in the river Jordan. And when they stayed in there, the waters would move and the people would be able to go across. 
But think of those priests that are carrying this ark, this heavy thing that has them in the middle of this water in like, I don't know, million people yeah. have to walk through. And it's like, can you guys get going quicker? Like, hello, I'm holding this heavy thing. Right. But God had them there for that purpose to get those people across. And so it's when I see people find purpose in their suffering is when um, they build this like callous to, to it. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's, it's understanding that, you know, there's just from like, like, cause I work outpatient for a while and like, I unfortunately had to watch some people go through a lot of stuff to get their kids back. Yeah. And that's such a sad, terrible thing because people get their kids taken from them because of the choices that they make and right or wrong. Like probably some people need to have their kids taken to them at parts of their life and yeah. because they're not capable of being parents, but then they get sober and they, they just crave so much that redemption of becoming a parent again and doing that, that they have to go through a lot of processes and setbacks along the way in the whole time though, their goal is to have their kids back and to have it. And so, but what happens when they get them back? If that's the only goal, well, well, then, then, then you need a new goal. And then like, okay, Okay. here we go. You know what I mean? If you place everything in achieving that one thing, you're going to always want, you're always going to want. I'm glad you said that. I just wanted to make a note there because I've had goals and I'd stayed sober for 60 days. The goal was accomplished. Well, yeah, it's like, sounds shallow, sounds simple, but it was real. I didn't realize that's all I wanted out of sobriety was some uh, one uh, objective to happen. And when it did, I'm like, well, this isn't sustaining life's dreadful again. I'm uncomfortable. I'm anxious. Yeah. I've, I got what I was supposed to get done. Let me take another window of relief. Mm-hmm. I might not be a successful alcoholic. Boy, I got to be one today. <laughs> right. Yeah. But what do you think? Yeah. I just want to have one question. Sure. Uh, because I just heard some programs. What's the best attribute in that window? Someone lost their kids and you, you're seeing that. You see that a lot in detox. What's the best thing as a clinician you're offering them in the window between there and getting their kids back? And I'm, let's maybe break that into two pieces. What's the best attributes to offer them in that pain? Because they're a human being. Addiction, trauma, it's repeating. You're trying to interrupt it without... Shame. What would you say those attributes are? And then coupled with what are you doing clinically to make sure they have a narrative that goes beyond the children? Okay. Mm. You get your kids back, but what's the, what's, what's the big game, the long game here? Man, it it, don't know because it just starts with, to me, the attribute is truth. So it's in timing to have that conversation of the truth of, like a situation in particular to what you just said is very crucial because the amount of guilt and shame that, you know, a person has that has addiction, that's, that's probably first and foremost. And so to then have that attribute of truth in that person to say, because of what you've done, because of the decisions that you made, you've now in your life have placed a substance over the value of your children. Like that's all, that's ultimately the, 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 the statement that has to be attacked Yeah, is you placed a substance in front of your children. Like uh, the most natural instinct that exists in human beings is to, is to take care of their offspring, to take care yeah. of their, like addiction has now supplanted that. And now that's there, but rapport 
in trusting and being that guide for that person to get to that understanding yeah has to start with just incremental aspects of truth for them to then start to trust and then and then and then you could kind of really get to and what are those the, increments uh, like okay cuz maybe i've heard people say this and you 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 have too we grew, they personify alcoholism, my disease, my this, this, as if it's, it's with them. It's separate. It's up to its own agenda. Carl mm-hmm. Jung called it the, the shadow self kind of that lives within us. But you're saying these increments is the increments because there's, there's shame attached to it. You put something before your kids and this is an objective truth. I guess you did. Right. But who did, who did this? The per, and then like, that's the story, right? That's the increments. Who are you? Right. You showed up somewhere and you got hurt. I'm not saying they should identify as a victim. And we were, t- we were talking about that earlier. I want to yeah. interject that. I don't think that's what you were saying either. Yeah. I don't like that. But somewhere you got hurt. Is that kind of the, the, the little breadcrumbs? Are you leading back to maybe an original hurt? Yeah. I mean, I believe in, in, in really like you, when it comes to therapy, when it comes to working with something, you got to like start with the present and you're like working in two ways. You're, you're, you're working backwards, but you're also trying to get them to understand like where the present gets them to where they got to go. But to me, it's like when you understand your history, when you understand your patterns, when you understand your upbringing, when, when you could resolve some of those things, all of a sudden you could start to move forward. So yeah, I think, you're not creating a victim by looking at like having a person go back to understand they had an alcoholic father that all they called them was shit for brains that can't do anything. And that you're just going to be a failure in everything that happened in their upbringing. You know, these, you know, narratives that happen that you start to believe, Yeah. you know, like, yeah, you know what? That sucked. You had a father that talked to you that way, that instilled those beliefs that you said, you're just a shit for brains. And now here you are, Constantly wondering if you're going to be good enough in a moment, and you always and, look at and it. Couple it with this: I have a brother, two years older. I'm, I'm, or, or I'm saying, like in this example that you're we saying, uh, that same kind of scenario. But I have a brother who's not an alcoholic, so I really must be a piece of shit. And I guess it starts with trauma not being the event; it's the response that individual's brain has to it. And the clear I'm seeing this story. You correct correct me too if I'm wrong. About, it's like this neural net pathway shows up in the brain that makes it habitual to for anxiety to tell these narratives. So there's like this weird cognition, like which one precedes each other. And I think that's the, the, the interesting stuff we talked about in the first half of this, that something's more powerful than cognition that you could tap into. It's this like group consciousness right. and it can change your thoughts. But my thoughts are on autopilot. I am uncomfortable. I tell a story. The story ends in the same way. Go back to a drug or drink. Is that, is that start from trauma? Is that how, like, how do you clinically look at that? Like, yeah, I mean. That it, 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 it doesn't look like it's always free will. Like it's, it's impulse. You got an eighth of a second to respond to an obsession to drink. I'm not even saying withdrawal, right? Yeah. I've always heard this fact thrown on me. And so have you. Yeah. What does that look like, like over an eight year scale? Is this person really acting out of free will or are they on a, are they on a hamster wheel neurologically? Cognitively? Yeah. Something needs to then interject in that moment to kind of really break the cycle. But 
yeah, like the cycle of trauma that, that a person kind of spins on is this, you know, this representing of the event that kind of really brings things to mind. And all of a sudden they're refeeling it and they're like in the event or their, their body is like constantly perceiving the world around them as a threat. Like think about the, yeah, think <laughs> yeah. about, you know, like, you know, um, you know, the, the wife that was always getting hurt by the husband or like physically. And so like constantly everywhere they look, there's always this idea of a threat coming, but then more like, you know, to relatable to me, like to being an addict and alcoholic, just like this, just fear of withdrawal, you know, and there's always this perceiving dread of just, I'm going to be sick. I need to get better. I need, how's this going to go? And there's just this consistent pattern of just like pain relief, pain relief, but it's not good. It's not there. Then ultimately something has to interject to really stop the cycle. But how do you do that in a compassionate understanding? Yeah. Individual you know, is that way you individual way, you know, and I think that's the delicate art of 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 counseling of clinical is to really walk that line of I know where you are, I understand where you are. I think based on what we talked about, it it makes sense to get to this point in life, and I understand that. But where you are is not where you could be and where I see you, you know what I mean? And so like there's this like compassion that happens, and that's what worked for me. Like my first there, like um, radical compassionate guy that really, yeah. Like, you know, um, Stan, you know what I mean? And yeah, he's, he's, a, he's, he's a special, person. Yeah, he's a special guy. Yeah. And he still is like, like a lot of his, Stan's a counselor from Clearbrook. From Clearbrook. That's yeah. yeah. He's retired now. He's and like, we're finally yeah. getting around to Clearbrook. Right. Yeah. I forgot. Yeah. Um, but you know, like those are the things that I see that, that woke helped, you up, that helped that woke me up. But then also, you know, of what stick with me to then work with a person to try to get that, what you're saying to happen, you know, I'm coming around to Clearbrook and I think we could talk about Clearbrook's modality if we could like for about 15 minutes, but the one thing you just said, and it's in out of interest, it's a question Mm -hmm. of interest. Um, I guess this is where, where you were saying, figuring out on an individual pathway, you hear this story, and how people, this interruption happens um, at the level of care you call this stabilization, detox, an interruption to an active addiction. Now, addiction could be in early stages, late stages, but the scenario you're describing, fight or flight, the world's a threat. This is an attribute of all late stage addiction. It's like a inflamed amygdala. I, I am seeing all narratives but there's a cognition in that. If someone really could go back and see that you have to tell your story to your mind, you're baking something in your mind of where the threat's going to come from. I see a, a microphone. It could be subconscious or I see that person's look. I know what they're up to. I know this is that they know I'm a, these are cognitions that happen. Right. But this is, if your amygdala is inflamed, like where's the choice being made? Like inflamed is maybe a wrong word, but it's, mm-hmm. it's hyperactive no, and it's looking for threats. This is late stage. You interrupt, but you know, everyone needs a couple different tools depending on the, and this is probably where your modality has colleagues. You do this in clinical meetings. It's not like shooting from the gut all the time. Right. Or are you guys all meeting as clinicians saying, I think this approach, even though it's not the approach we would do to Bobby for Susie, I think we're going to, we can challenge her a little more. Is that like kind of a group think well, of well, that, well, that's where 
treatment exists today. Like you got to understand, like there's been a like, you know, from the Minnesota model to like where treatment world exists now, you know, there, like there's a lot. What would you say the Minnesota model was? The Minnesota model is a 12 step approach to treatment. So, you know, it's basically taking what happens in AA, the principles of AA, with the cognitive behavioral approach and really just interjecting that into a treatment center. Okay. You know, and so that's kind of, you know, that's where you have to do your first step. You have to do your first step in treatment. You have that's to everything I experienced. You know, everything. So that's yeah. the Minnesota model. No, no, for better or for worse or what it is, it, it's there. But like, you know, there's this still like underlying thing, in my opinion, of where kind of treatment is on its trajectory now is that when it comes to that approach, there's this like, you have to instill fear in an individual to get better. For reference, we're speaking of the Milgram experiments on obedience to authority figures. They were a series of social psychological experiments conducted by Yale University psychologist Stanley Milgram. They measured the willingness of study participants, 40 men in the age range of 20 to 50, from a diverse range of occupations with varying levels of education to obey an authority of figure who instructed them to perform acts conflicting with their personal conscience. Participants were led to believe that they were assisting in an unrelated experiment in which they had to administer electric shocks to a learner. These fake electric shocks gradually increased to levels that would have been fatal had they been real. The experiment found unexpectedly that a very high proportion of subjects would fully obey the instructions with every participant going up to 300 volts and 65% of them going up to the full 450 volts, which would have been notified that it was fake, could be fatal. Milgram first described his research in a 1963 article in the journal of abnormal and social psychology, and later discussed his findings in greater depth in his 1974 book, Obedience to Authority, an Experimental View. Mike and I discussed this a little more. So it's like, you need to accept that you're powerless over this substance. Boot camp, sergeant, drill sergeant. A drill sergeant, right. And, And you either need to be shamed to understand that powerlessness or do that, because if you go back to that, you know, which is true in that like if you tell a heroin addict like you know you go back to like you're gonna die and you know what that's true like things that exist right now you use again you don't have that like probability you don't have that probability but there's this like built-in like thing when it comes to like that minnesota model of like you have to establish a fear of going back to the substance in order to like accept it and go right but so now like with treatment with understanding like more like a, like a person centered approach, trauma informed going this individualized thing yeah. like that might not work for everybody. Like people that have a problem with authority, people that just struggle with, right. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Because like, if you tell someone you can't do that and you're going to like, what are you going to do? Like, don't think about an elephant. Don't think about an elephant. I see a pink one right now. You I know am, what I mean? Like, I am counter will. Yeah. You're I'm just going to do that. You're will. the antagonist. Yeah. You're going to, you're going to want, but so that approach wouldn't work for Joe Van Wee. You know, we need to kind of really approach like, how do we kind of help him here? How do we do that? And so, yes, treatment today is about that. It's, it's obviously more um, standardized when it comes to like the medical aspect of, 
you know, there's detox protocols, there's certain levels of medications that you do, like sort of someone that's coming off benzos, how you kind of really, what substance you use to detox someone there. But to answer the question, it's yes. I think treatment in general, as it exists now, it's like, rather than trying to make people fit into a mold, um, it's more like, let's make this mold fit around the individual, you know? And I yeah, think that's, it, and that's, there's a lot of value and there's a lot of truth in that, you know? That was all new yeah. to me. Uh, and I kind of got more of an understanding of what the term individual approach means. It's a, it's a term that means something. And it, uh, it helped me tremendously. Yeah. Um, you know, if I could quickly summarize this, the idea of Clearbrook, I think it, it, it's been around since the fifties. Um, that's I, I, I don't want to hold like I think it's like you. the seventies. I'll, I'll like, know. Yeah. I probably said yeah. it in the intro, right? If, uh, but yeah. you know, this is decades. Um, and then in the eighties, there's you know a big chieftain comes in, a recovery chieftain, <laughs> uh, Nick Colangelo. Yes, uh, Nick Colangelo. Uh, you know, transformed that place visually. Um, philosophically, philosophically yeah. numbers, um, and built a campus. Yes. Like it looks like a college campus up there. Um, and that was growth. It was huge. It was a big footprint here. It was able to put what was seemingly showing up like these healthcare models, um, a very developed and dignified place to stay good food. Uh, their kitchen improved and the model, he builds this up and then it's bought and then a new evolution takes place. And, um, and it's funny cause Nick's Nick's changed a lot of his ideas, even in the recent because society changes, language changes, technology changes. I guess it changes us somewhat too. Yeah. <laughs> or how yeah. we're, so I guess we, can we pick up right there? Banyan, Banyan comes in. Banyan's this company from Florida, this fresh startup of this like really unique story of a couple individuals, one entrepreneur, someone in recovery. They start with a, a sober house in Florida and immediately after like just this initial team's built, an organization rises up of a really ethical, modern, and a medically assisted treatments being applied with a really strong philosophy, which I, I believe in, mm -hmm. um, comes to our backyard in Wilkes-Barre. This is a big right. change from 12-step guys. Nick's classic, man. Yeah. You called at midnight. You could get a guy in there at midnight. Right. When I was like, that's, that's profound. Yeah. And that's, so now Banny comes in. You become the clinical director. How much have you changed in that period? What did you, what did you have to change about what you believed in and why did you? So that answer is actually <laughs> goes to honestly, roughly around like 2014. Um, I've been holding off on correct. I'm the executive director. I was, oh, that, yeah, 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 but yeah, I don't so, want to, yeah, that's fine. Thanks uh, for the that's correction. Okay. I know I hate doing that right now. I feel like so no, smart. In that. whatever, don't. um, but no. Okay. So, um, yeah. And my idea of what clever, like, you know, I was a patient at Clearbrook three times getting sober. Um, last time was in 2010. I come back. Um, I go to the Salvation Army. I get out of that. My best friend's Joe Kane. He's working there. Gets me a job in the kitchen. I work in the kitchen. 
then I become a, I become a tech there. And it's just like, everything is really like coming to mind. Like at one point in our conversation, you asked like, what got me into this field? It's, it's those moments of like connecting with people, trying to um, understand like how to work this out with a person having recovery. So I left there and I went to outpatient. I worked in an outpatient place for six years, but right around 2014 is when Suboxone uh, MET starts to become this um, push of like Medicaid and things like that. And I had to really confront my bias of like, what, wait a second, we're going to give a medication right now to help an individual who's suffering from something that this acts in the same way. I was very rudimentary in my understanding what that means. I had no idea the pharmacology of what a partial agonist is, what that does, you no, know, um, do what that means to kind of really harm reduction approach, like the whole purpose and validity and how that truly helps someone was lost at me in that time. Because philosophically I'm like, go to meetings, you know, like that type of approach yeah, still, you know what I mean? Based, yeah, abstinence-based, yeah, yeah, yeah. And sobriety I mean, is only, or recovery right. is this term that is intellectual property to A's camp. Correct. Yeah, yeah. And it's only abstinence. This is starting to yeah. be, sh- the foundation of this belief for you is being shaken. Sure, correct. Yeah. And so like, but then I start like, so like that happened in like 2014 for me where I really started to see like, man, like wh- how do I, what's my idea of someone getting better? What does better look like? And what's this definition of recovery? And, you know, like that's this kind of fluid thing for a person. And I slowly started like really seeing that, you know what, man, like this, this is true to help someone like using an MET, having that, like, and there's nothing wrong. What's the first thing that caught your eye? So you're, you're part of a structure that's going to be doing this, but you personally have to, you have to to reconcile this. Are they right? You got this. If I had to guess, it's two lanes happening here. The metrics mm. of recidivism or relapse within a year with or without the MAT for yeah. this kind of same case scenario, I would say. Yeah. And then really questioning, are we all finding recovery? What is recovery for all of us? What if you were seriously sexually abused for the first 10 years of your life? I know. What if you were born into poverty? What if you had violent trauma? Is the bar the same at for that person as someone who has addiction in it, like we got to grow up. Yeah. Like we're not, this isn't a fucking metric for all of us. And it's a first order, secondary, third, like uh, of order problems. And what you do, like, it's like the onion approach of like, you start peeling things away and it's like, all right, like this medication helps someone get to the point of producing healing and getting there. And so that's what I've like, I started seeing play out. And then you couple it with the fact that like, I'm close with a lot of people who overdose and die and it's like, oh my gosh, like if they, you know, if they had yeah. this, what if, you know, you bridge. just don't know. And it's a bridge. And so, yeah. So to get to like, right. So that's what kind of started shattering that idea of like what it means to get better. And I grew my understanding of recovery, grew my understanding of treatment, started expanding my knowledge of how to help people, uh, treatment modalities, things like that. You start to improve, you know, and, and, and that's what's really started to um, impact my, um, my framework of looking at these approaches because it's, you know, it seems to work. And then, all right. So now we're in 2018, Northeastern Pennsylvania, (laughs) you know, like this, the jewel of like recovery in our area, which is, which is like Clearbrook was, it is the standard 
in our area on many levels for many years and has touched the lives of like our Lackawanna, Luzerne, Wyoming County area. I'd like, say it's covered 30 you, you know counties, what I mean? Jersey here. I mean, it was, yeah, it's I mean, footprint it's, of was enormous, enormous. And what it means, and it's the personalities and it's the people that like, you know, so many people are coming to mind that made that place special and what it is. And even today, what continues to make it special is the people that like I get to be with. And so, um, yeah, I think you're it's coming the, too. we're coming from like, it was yeah. almost like showbiz, like, like the Las Vegas. Oh, of, right. And what I mean by that is, so let me, let me describe that. The personalities of recovery, <laughs> yeah. Nick Colangelo's larger than life. Yeah. Um, and to still be friends and have a rapport. And I know you do with, with him at, at his age, he's, it's odd. He, he's treating me like a friend and we're talking and, um, he he's so insightful telling me these a lot of things I don't understand and, and how this evolved right. the bit of it being a field or an industry. But then you have Leo and uh, Dick Conaboy. Right. Um, and I can name, you could just keep going down the list of mm-hmm. from bikers to, you know, uh, preppy elites. And <laughs> you had such a cast of characters. There was no one you couldn't find on that property to relate to and say, Maybe, I may not be like this person. I could find some distinction to get out of there, but there's right. someone at Clearbrook that you'll say, holy fuck, that's me. Right. That's me. Mm-hmm. And so like, right. <laughs> and, and, and at some level when, you know, the, the transition happened in 2018, I think it was met with this kind of anger from the community, <laughs> you know, because it was like this, this jewel of the Northeast recovery that all of a sudden is being like villainized, so to say by this, like these people we don't know from Florida getting them, you know, like now like taking this, like who are these people? But meanwhile, they're genuine. They're authentic. They care about people getting better. They have, they have a philosophy and model that is working. And it was like Clearbrook was Banyan's first purchased, you know? And so that was the, facility that, you know, kind of really started, you know, Banyan's growth. Like as of today, there are 15, soon to be 16 Banyans in the course of Banyan facilities in the course of my four, four or five, five years, years working four or five there, years. you know, so like it's, it's a, it's an approach that's working, but it's. And they it's kept the true. name, Mike, just yeah. a real quick oh, question. Yeah, Cause yeah, I was yeah. on your website yeah. and um, I was curious. I didn't know that. Like I'm, I'm just catching up. There's Clearbrook's logo. But then it said Clearbrook, Massachusetts. I'm yeah, like, wow, right. why and would someone? And I was like, oh my God, it's a great name. Yep. Yeah. So Banyan's leading inpatient and detox. Are they, is it only two facilities with the Clearbrook name? Right. There's okay. one in Massachusetts and, there, and there's the one that we're at. Yeah. And um, are you both the same levels of care? Is it detox inpatient? Correct. Yeah. Okay. And then um, they, they do uh, mental health primer at the one in Massachusetts as well. So dual diagnosed comorbidities, yep. serious generalized anxiety disorder. If this is established, would you it's preferably you go up to Massachusetts? Is that how it works? Oh yeah. 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 How about bipolar disorder? And yeah, addiction? I mean, and, and even with that, like those type of things, like we're, we were more than capable of like yeah. treating that, like where we are too, because like the, the, uh, 
the amount of like clinical resources that we kind of provide for people right now can more than meet those needs. But like, if you're saying like someone that's mental health primary, then yes, they're primary. Yeah. And what would yeah. be primary personality disorder? Well, of, well, like, I mean, that's part or, of addiction. Like those, yeah. those things are there, but if you're, you're more along the lines of someone that has like, uh, like you say, we have an eating disorder specific program. So if that oh, was like a okay, primary yeah. thing, you would do that. But if it's someone that has like true, like schizophrenia, schizophrenia. you know, dissociative disorders, things like that, like people that suffer with um, like, high suicidality that are risk like cutters, things like that. You know what I mean? We could, yeah, they have the ability to treat that there, but that like, that goes in with this like approach. So like, um, like my boss has this like cliche saying that he always says, like you do the right things for the right reasons, the right things happen. And embedded is that is like, <laughs> right. But embedded is that is this true, genuine, authentic approach to meeting the needs of an individual, meeting the needs of a facility where you treat them with dignity, worth, and respect. And you try to do the best that you can to create that environment for both the individual and the worker, then success will follow for people yeah. getting better, you know? And, and those, those are the people, these people that came in that this is truly how they are. And then, so like navigating that change there, because like, like, it's just crazy because because Joe King, like, gives me this suggestion to like, hey, I threw your name in for a hat for a position there in like 2018. And I and I take it and I go there. Right. And so it's like right in the midst of this change. And then 50, 50, 60 days into it, Joe's like, I'm leaving. My other executive, oh, he's going, you know what I mean? And so like, here I am with all these like, my gosh, like Anna is still there. Sharon. So like all yeah. of the big people that are. Clearbrook, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Of this, like where, you know, are still there. And it's like, you know, and we're navigating where the change has to approach. So like, I'm, I'm thrust into that environment of knowing, you know, where we need to go and then battling kind of, you know, ideologies in a way or what it so is. How, and so, yeah. how does, how does an organization that's new acquires a beautiful, large treatment center, how do modalities change? Because you're changing, like you said, ideologies. This right. is different. It's like a, it's, it's an invasion. It's a foreign invader <laughs> comes in and we're not going to tolerate uh, your religion here. It's like, mm. it's old bronzy. Yeah. If we had to look at it, that kind of narrative, but right, right. Uh, how do, how does an enlightened group of people come in and change the modality? So it seems resistance always leaves you, to have the option to resign or leave mm -hmm. in a free, free society. But what do you think, what changed you to believe the modality? This, this fits. I, I like this. And it seems to be reaching more people. And that's exactly it. Yeah. it I wouldn't even know if it was a change. It's just me with uh, a belief that I have to show care and concern to people to help them get better and to do that. And to understand that, like, that's a, that's a fundamental value that is shared by Banyan, by the people that are there. It's like to help people like to get better in an ethical, um, authentic way. Right. Um, it allows me to believe in the mission. So to say, yeah. And I think over time it was kind of like this prove it thing where, I think the people that were there, like, and honestly, yeah, like a ton of people left, like a ton, you know, and, and, and there's like a but lot they of people. Do. Yeah, they always do. Of any you know? place. Yeah. And, and that happens. And it's, and it's like what it, what it is for the time that it happens. But then 
over time of being consistent, of really trying to take this approach to be innovative, to try new things, to accept someone that like you might've been risk, like thinking that it might've been risky to take because they, they present with a little bit more mental health needs or, are we going to take a service dog? Are we going to do like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, can't like, have Xbox, these little things, you know what I mean? There's TVs in the rooms oh, now. It's you, like, Oh man, you, you know what I mean? What are we doing? You know, like, but you, you know, control these, the TV. It's, it's, yeah, you shut them off like during clinical time and you, you know only I mean? show a and E, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. No, yeah. but like, so I, if I wanted I, to go up to detox yeah. and just test it for, I'd stay there 12 hours and sure. say, is this the right detox for me? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I'm going to leave, um, with every place that comes here, uh, all, all the details. Um, okay. We got to the hour and I wanted to talk about more. Okay. I want to talk about Gestalt. Would you come back? Yeah, Maybe absolutely. we have you and Joe just have a head off. Oh. We'll, we'll just Gestalt each other. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. You need to deal with this in this moment. No, oh, I, like man. the Spider-Mans that yes. are just the three Spider-Mans pointing at each other. Yeah. But I, I wanted, to, I, I was really happy for you to come on because I wanted an update. You know, I, I don't know who listens in my uh, footprint, but Clearbrook, um, I wanted the story be, to be told because the, the word on the, the street now, mm-hmm. drug, is that the changes are now producing a result that people are paying attention to. And um, ideologies are changing because the problem's a little different. Not, I'm not saying alcoholism is different. I'm saying society's different. Fentanyl's different. Mm-hmm. Fentanyl doesn't allow many people to get to late stage addiction. Mm-hmm. It kills you if you're in it. And then if you're starting an addiction, you're not going to have the wiggle exploratory window that we had in high school with narcotics, pot, yeah. and alcohol. Yeah. That's a diff. The response has to be different. Yep. And our understanding just has to be broader. Yep. And I like individual paths because that's called, there's a liberty, there's a freedom, and it's not an authoritative approach. Because I fucking resist, man. I resist anything. Mm-hmm. I could be dying. And I could give you the finger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of like it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to lose a little part of that adventure. I always. But. You would not have hit that shock button. You would have been like, no. I would, yeah. Give no. fuck, pal. Let's dance. <laughs> yeah. I ain't killing some dude. Yeah. What, because you're telling me because you got a lab coat on? You're a creep? Yeah. yeah well, um, Mike, it's great catching up. I'm glad Absolutely. we got to nerd out a little on Will. Yeah. Um, I'll see you soon. Yes, sir. I'd like to thank you for listening to another episode of All Better. You can find us on allbetter.fm or listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Alexa. Special thanks to our producer, John Edwards, and engineering company 570 Drone. Please like or subscribe to us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And if you're not on social media, you're awesome. Looking forward to seeing you again. And remember, just because you're sober doesn't mean you're right. Hi, this is Joe Van Wee, your host of All Better. I had a few announcements. 
If you're interested in subscriber content, which we're about to launch, this would be step workshops, cognitive behavioral therapy tools, and mindfulness practices that are approachable and can be very useful in reducing anxiety, rumination, and depression. Please send us a a message on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And if you like the episodes that you've been hearing very much, please stop by Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and a small review. This helps us stay relevant in the field of content and helping people and their families with substance use disorder. Thank you.